Could we begin this morning talking with our amazing creator and sustainer? Abba Father, Papa as Brother Kurt refers to you. We come today to revel in your majesty and power, but also to seek answers to questions about our part in your universal plan. I ask that you open our hearts and minds today to new possibilities and would appreciate clarity as I share the thoughts you've put in my heart. It's in Jesus' most holy name that I ask and you answer. Amen. It's been 12 years since I had the opportunity to share a message. I was at a different church, and there was a nice sturdy podium there that I could hold on to for my life. And I need to explain why that's true in just a second. In case you miss my name, or don't know my name, it's Tim Stein. You need to know that. And you may not believe this, but I'm the quiet behind-the-scenes elder in the church. I suppose I prefer it that way as I have been working through a lifelong struggle with low self-esteem. I've always been quiet, especially in groups, introverted and in my early years downright shy and absolutely terrified of girls. For me, my shyness and my, what I would call an extreme shyness began as a toddler. Here's an early picture of me and this other baby who happens to be my mirror image. I wanted to begin showing this picture in hopes that you might think, oh, how cute they are. In case you were wondering which one is me, I'm really not sure. <laughs> I think I'm on the right-hand side, and the reason I say that is that there are two telltale signs for knowing which is which. My twin brother Jim has a forceps scar above his left ear, and I have this obvious double-jointed finger sticking up, which has probably not helped my self-image very much. I'm <clears throat> so, for the first two decades, my identity was a bit cloudy, as I was known as one of the Stein twins. Since almost no one actually knew which one was which, and that included my mother on occasion, but I obviously knew which one I was, and I couldn't understand why nobody else could figure it out. Uh, during the early school years, the only time I actually heard my first name called was from my teachers, a few classmates that knew me, and when my parents and brothers called me at home. Well, nightly at the supper table, my parents would typically share about their day, and after many a meal, my brothers and I were instructed that we were not to tell anyone anything about what we heard, because Dad had an image to maintain in the community, and we were expected to uphold the Stein name, whatever that meant. Moving ahead, after graduation from college, I started what began a 45-year career in public education. And you've probably guessed, I started out as a quiet, shy, high school history teacher, living at home and going to the same church that I had for the past 22 years. I suppose because the word was out that I was a school teacher, that the Sunday school, school superintendent approached me and asked if I would teach the junior high boys class. And I guess I must have agreed because the next Sunday I found myself standing in front of 12 adolescent boys 
And I had never read James's admonition about the responsibilities that come when teaching God's word to God's people, even God's younger people. Uh, so it created a little bit of a problem for me down the road. It wasn't until I met and shortly thereafter married my amazing wife, Bonnie, and moved to Lakeland that I became acquainted with the Christian church and its teachings. And then, after, shortly after I started attending the church, I was immersed, and right after that, was asked to become a deacon and then an elder. Not long after that, I became a Sunday school teacher, choir director, and worship leader. But I'm sorry to admit that although I matured in years, I hadn't matured in God's wisdom. In fact, I had rarely, if ever, asked God if he wanted me to take on these opportunities for serving others. Um, Nor did I ever consider the impact that all these time-consuming activities had on my primary responsibility of husband and father. But let me just put aside the story of my poorly developed self-concept for a minute and invite you to join me in turning to our scripture passage from the book of Esther. And I'm going to be reading various passages from the first four chapters while telling Esther's story. The book of Esther begins, this is a story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all officials. The royal wine flowed freely, a generous king. On the seventh day of the party, the king, high on wine, ordered his personal servants to bring him Queen Vashti, resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good-looking. But Queen Vashti refused the summons. The king lost his temper, seething with anger over her insolence. The king called to his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his expert advisors. I think I am pretty sure in saying that these advisors must have been experts in handling a strong-willed wife, because that's what they were asked to do. As you read through the account, you'll start to see a pattern developing. Evidently, Xerxes, like me, was rather unsure of himself, and he frequently asked other men for advice, which often turned out to be very bad counsel. So if you would continue on reading with me, Memekin spoke up at the council. It's not only the king Vashti, Queen Vashti has insulted, it's all of us, leaders and people alike in every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's gotten going to get out, When the women hear it, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. The day the wives get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? No. No. (laughs) This obviously took place a long time before tape recordings. I'm sure Memicum made a big hit with the council, but would he have been so brave if CNN TV uh, cameras were facing him in the palace? I don't think so. What price would he going to have to pay the night when he got home to, uh, to his home to his wife? And then he went on to advise the king to get rid of the queen, to banish her from the kingdom. And before the king had a chance to sober up, he had agreed, and the legal documents were signed and sealed, and... They basically disposed of Queen Vashti. Well, you don't need an advanced degree to figure out that, or figure out what happened as, when the party was over. Xerxes came to his senses. 
He truly missed his wife in all ways, and he realized he had made a terrible mistake. Uh, But men, even back then, were evidently stubborn, because once a royal decree was made, you couldn't undo it. So goodbye, Vashti. Hello, loneliness. And we pick up the text again in chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' anger had cooled and he was having second thoughts, the king's young attendant stepped in and got the ball rolling. Let's begin a search for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint officials in every province to bring in every beautiful young virgin to the palace. The king's eunuch will put them through the beauty treatments and then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. The king liked the advice and took it. Well, here's where Mordecai and Esther come into the story. Mordecai was a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin, and he was, had a cousin who he adopted and was raising by the name of Esther. And she looked up to him and obeyed him, just as her father. And the text says that Esther was lovely in form and features. So naturally, when King Xerxes' official came to town, Esther was included in the group of virgins that were sent on to the palace. The remainder of chapter 2 goes into detail about the beautification process, But as you could probably predict, Esther catches King Xerxes' eye, and he chooses her for his new queen, and they live happily ever after. Uh, I'm afraid not. At the beginning of chapter 3, the word tells us something later, the king promotes, sometimes later, the king promotes Haman as second in command over the entire empire. And with this promotion, Haman's head starts to swell to the point that he convinces the king to command that everyone must bow down to not only King Xerxes, but also to Haman. And things were good until one day when Haman passed through the king's gate and Mordecai refuses to bow or kneel. And this continues day after day. Well, needless to say, Haman is furious, and he plots to not only have Mordecai killed, but all the Jews in the kingdom, because once he realizes that Mordecai is a worthless Jew, he just wants to wipe out the whole group. Bulletins were sent to all the provinces in all the kingdoms, and so basically what he had done is he went in to see Xerxes and convinced him that he, well, he convinced him with money, if you want to read the whole story, but he convinced him that he uh, should listen to Haman and that there was this group of people that needed to be kind of done away with, gotten rid of, because they were just bad. And so that's when he decides that this is his way he's going to accomplish his purposes. Um, but when the bulletins were sent to all the provinces listing the date and time of the massacre of the Jews, Mordecai, when he hears about it, and he realizes how treacherous Haman's ideas are, he rips his clothes to shreds and puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he goes out into the streets of the city and crying out in loud and bitter sobs. Well, obviously, Esther, uh, the word gets back to Queen Esther that her father is terribly upset So once Esther kind of gets over the initial shock of this, she sends new clothes with her servant and instructs him to go out and find her adopted father and to to find out what awful thing had happened. Well, Mordecai tells Esther's servant what Haman has done, confesses that he was at fault because he didn't bow down, and then continues to mourn for his people. When Esther hears the whole story, she doesn't know what to do. Remember, she's young, And she's always taken advice from her father, who's not allowed in the palace. She doesn't know what to do. So moving ahead in chapter 4, Esther's servant is now telling her what he has learned from from talking with the father. Her servant came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. 
Esther talked it over with her servant and then sent back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. Death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. You get a sense of the power trip that Xerxes is on. He's obviously calling all the shots. He's totally inapproachable. And then upon hearing the news from her father, it's clear that Esther's first and foremost concern is for her life. So Mordecai, realizing that he needs to help Esther kind of come to grips with the enormity of the situation, sends back a stern reply. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of all this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just a time as this. Esther had to stop and think about what he had just said. Maybe. Probably more than a maybe. But maybe God put you in this place for just this moment. Well, Esther finally does get a grip of of the immensity, and she kind of finally realizes what she's going to do and immediately sends back another message. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast and fast with you. And if you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. It took one admonishment from her father to come get her to come to her senses. Because basically what Mordecai was telling her is, Esther, stop thinking about yourself. You need to see the big picture. Did you ever stop to consider that Jehovah God would be using you in your position in this time of impending disaster? Get a grip. You need to come face to face with the totality of what's happening. It isn't about you. It's about an entire nation of your people. So, And you notice the book of Esther doesn't end here. There are four more chapters. In chapters 5 through 8, it tells the rest of the story. And it's a really amazing story about what happens in this whole situation. And it's one that you ladies, I'm sure, are going to want to read because only a wise woman could pull off what Esther was able to accomplish. And yes, she does live, in case you hadn't read the story yet. But um, the thing I would suggest to you is that this afternoon would be a perfect time to read the whole story of Esther and kind of see it from beginning to end. There's two reasons that I've been reading from um, this morning from the message paraphrase version. Um, And I don't know about you, but for me there are times when I really enjoy reading uh, familiar passages in, in very familiar, everyday, conversation-type words. And the message is especially readable when telling a story like Esther's. But I also wanted to share the, from the message today because of the author Eugene Peterson. My younger brother John was the strong-willed child and young adult in our family. And after college, he finally landed a position as an editor at Nav Press, which is a Christian book publishing company that's, that's found in... Uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. John was there for a dozen or so years working with a number of Christian authors when he stumbled across an article about a pastor in a medium-sized church by the name of Eugene Peterson. Peterson was beginning a six-week sermon series on the Psalms, and he was um, 
as, as he was starting his initial research, he realized that some of the people in his congregation were going to have trouble really understanding the message in, in the Psalms because of the language and, and, and pretty much the vocabulary that they use in a lot of translations. So he decides to set out to write the Psalms in the language of everyday people. And his efforts were so well received that when he, took, when he finished that whole series, he decided to take on the challenge of writing an understanding, easy-to-understand paraphrase of Proverbs, the collection of wise sayings that Solomon had developed and had accumulated and kind of cataloged uh, in what we know as the Proverbs. And his congregation was even more enthusiastic after they heard what he had for them in, in that area. So uh, as his accolades kind of spread, uh, the details were picked up by a reporter, and there were several positive news- newspaper and magazine articles about Eugene. And my brother happened to pick up the article, and then he picked up his phone and hopefully uh, trying to get an interview with the author. And what followed was the beginning of a lifelong friendship between the two. John was successful in convincing Eugene to expand on what he had already started, uh, to complete the entire New Testament and ultimately the entire Bible in the message format. And Eugene agreed to let Press finance the project on the condition that John was to be the exclusive editor. As to, and so what started as a simple aid to reading scripture has quickly spread worldwide. I doubt that my brother used Mordecai's exact phrase, instead relying on a paraphrase of his own, one that may have sounded something like, just for such a time as this, Eugene, God has put you in this place to amplify his word to the world. Nor could John have known at that moment the rest of the story. You see, Navpress, like many Christian publishers, was experiencing a downturn in sales. They needed a major infusion of revenue to sustain the future of the company, and so In that regard, my brother became the one who, at just the right time, provided the catalyst for a huge, unexpected publishing success known as The Message. I truly believe it was another huge God thing. My ABF class regularly hears me say, I've been reading a book this week. Well, this week's book is entitled The Warning by T. Davis Bunn. And it's a present-day takeoff in the stories of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and Moses and Aaron leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And the warning begins with the main character, Buddy, a quiet, unassuming Christian assistant bank manager, nightly experiencing a highly vivid dream, and quite disturbing dream at that. After a month of re- this reoccurring dream, he hears from God, and only then is he able to put the whole message together. He goes to his pastor and explains that he thinks he's been given a message from God that in 41 days the entire financial structure of America will fail, a failure that will far exceed the Great Depression of 1929. This sudden failure is to be followed by seven years of famine. God gives Buddy a very specific message to share with the people, details of what they should do individually to prepare for the next seven years of pain and suffering. But Buddy struggles. He's reluctant to become God's prophet. His brother and wife keep trying to convince him that he needs to trust God and see this through. Well, without going into a lot more detail, I want to read a conversation that goes a long way toward convincing Buddy to become God's messenger for just a time like this. Buddy and his wife, his wife Molly are on their way to another speaking engagement to warn people about what's coming soon. And Molly is staring out the car window. It's funny, Molly said. 
I was just thinking about Mama. He glanced over. Her face was tilted slightly so that she, she could look out both the front and side windows. The scar that ran from her left ear downward was displayed in all its angry fullness. Molly went on. I was thinking about the accident. Oh, Molly, time has it been such a bad day for her. Molly had not spoken about the accident in 30 years, not since the year before they were married. I was five, the same age as Jennifer and Meredith, Molly said, repeating the story he had heard just once before. Mama was boiling bones in the stove to make marrow soup. The pot was boiling over. It was making such a mess. I had no idea how heavy it was until I tried to lift it off. It spilled all over me, down the side of my face, down my neck and shoulder. I'm so sorry, he murmured, hurting anew for her. And not just because of the accident, but he ached over how the journey was already causing her such grief that she lived the worst time of her life. He was inundated with the desire to turn around and go home, let the whole thing pass them by, take the days left to them, and just enjoy what was theirs. The temptation was so strong he felt little tremors run down his fingers and through the steering wheel. Mama was such a proper woman, Molly said in her own soft way. She was a good person and a good Christian, but, but was too concerned about what the world saw. Suddenly, as the tremors came, they passed. But he glanced over once more, and there was something new. He had often thought the same things about Molly's mother, but had never spoke them out loud. Mama was devastated by what I had done, and so angry. I knew she was trying to hide her anger from me, but I knew she was furious. She shouldn't have been, and it didn't make any sense, so she refused to even see it herself. But she was so, so angry. One finger reached up and touched the scar, but he slowed as he could keep his gaze on her. Molly never touched her scar, except to powder it in the mornings. Watching her trace one finger lightly down the edge where healthy skin met the red tint scar tissue brought a lump to his throat. Mama stayed angry for such a long time, probably not being able to admit she was furious even to herself, and that made it last longer. At the time, all I knew was that I had done something terrible, and it was my own way. I was better understanding than she did that Mama was a proper lady. She was so concerned that the world thought good of her, and now her daughter had a scar that told everyone who looked at her that Mama was not a good mother, and she didn't look after her own daughter. You don't know that, Molly. I know the way she taught me to use makeup long before other girls even knew what face powder was. I watched her take all my blouses and sew and embroider collars that almost reached my ears. I learned from her how to set my hair so that it would gather and spill over my left shoulder and hold it in place with bright ribbons so attention would be taken away from my scar. Molly dropped her hand, gathered it with the other in her lap. I was so ashamed. I had disgraced my mother. But he put on his blinker and pulled over to the side of the road. You haven't disgraced anyone, Molly. Not then, not ever. But I did, you know... Her eyes were pools of grief. Deep inside, a little girl was still crying tears the woman no longer shed. I saw it every time she looked at me. I was a scandal. Stop it, Molly, please. He reached over for her hands. Look, there's still time if we hurry. I'll drive you back home. I can do this alone. There's no need. That's not why I'm telling you this. One hand slid over to cover his. I've let my mother's shame 
be a barrier for too long, buddy. Coming to terms with this journey has brought us all the reasons why I've spent my whole life hiding. Oh, I know I'm shy by nature, but more than that is at work here. But he leaned back but kept his hands in hers. He had no idea where she was going with this. Molly looked into the light-streaked windshield. For several years now, I've been wanting to do something more, something outside the church. I couldn't understand what it was or why I felt that way, but I do now. I wanted to grow beyond the barriers that I had let restrict all my life. I want to grow. A flood of shame swept through him. He sat beside his wife of 29 years, feeling about two inches tall. Here he was, called to terms so vivid he felt as though his heart had been remolded in the process, and yet he was still looking for excuses to return to his comfort and his routines. But his wife, who had a lifetime of quiet constraint to overcome, was willing to challenge her limitations for no more reason than a hunger to develop and the knowledge that he needed her. But he reached over and stroked a strand of wayward hair. I'm so proud of you, Molly. The words brought her back to earth and her quietly prim ways. I didn't do anything. Oh, yes, you did. He stroked her cheek, let his fingertips run lightly over her scar. His wonderful, wounded little bird, you've done so much. So, what do a boy in York County, Pennsylvania, seeking his identity, a young queen facing a life and death dilemma, two newfound friends searching for a way to reach people for the word, and a banker reluctant to become God's messenger, what do they all have in common? Well, they all had to sooner or later come face to face with God, eventually realizing that only when they surrendered their doubts and began to seek God's bigger, better plan, that they could find answers, the directions that they were looking for. You see, as a boy, I was hiding behind my self-doubts, blaming my situation on being a twin as my excuse for a poor self-image, and later thinking that to uphold the Stein name to please my dad meant that I had to do it all by myself, never realizing that I was chasing the approval of the wrong father. Queen Esther was not able to speak directly to her adopted father when she desperately needed his advice, not understanding until chapter 5 that the answers to her dilemma were found only through trusting her heavenly father. When my brother brought the proposal to Eugene Peterson, Eugene could have easily rebuffed John with, hey, I was just trying to help my people get through a sermon series, and we're fine, just like we are. But instead, Eugene realized that God wanted him to help all God's people understand God's word more clearly and practically. Buddy the banker could have said, God, I'm just a nobody from Eastern Shore who understands banking principles and just wants to help the people of Aden, Delaware. So thanks, but no thanks. But instead, he realized that God wanted him to be the kind of mouthpiece that he needed just because he was a banker that had some understanding of all those principles and just because he cared about people. God needed him to care about his people. Each and every one finally realized God's plan for just a time as this. Sounds like a good spot to conclude with prayer, doesn't it? But then you and I would be missing the point of the message. 
Possibly by now you've been beginning to realize that your father has been whispering to you today, tugging at your heartstrings, nudging you. At least that's what he told me he was going to do. He made it clear that he wants everyone here to be pricked by Mordecai's words. Maybe you were made for such a time as this. But words alone can't be enough to explain God's enormous creation, his creativity, his sustainability, his loving nature. And yet, as amazing as he is, at the top of his bucket list, God created each of us in his image. He knew everything about you and me, even before he created us. He knew your entire story from beginning to end, past, present, and future, and he's been cheering for you every step of the way. He wants the absolute best for you, not just a ho-hum, mediocre life of struggling with what the world throws at you. He desires a closer relationship with you and is right beside you waiting for a sign that you want that relationship too. But God, better than anyone, also knows the design flaws in us humans. We all can talk the talk, but then to actually take the steps to put our well-intended words into action, that's another thing indeed. So, may I ask, what's holding you back from taking the first bold step towards seeking a closer relationship with your father? Is it the pain of overcoming an abusive childhood, a struggling marriage, being way too deep in debt, a secret sin, trusting a friend who's shattered your friendship? Do you feel like God would never want you to be a friend? Do you see yourself as absolutely worthless, too worthless for God to ever care about you? Do you know that self-doubt is one of the most effective tools of Satan to rob us of a positive self-image and a closer walk with our Savior and Heavenly Father? And did you also know that you can take the first step today? It may be the most important thing you do all day, any day. I want you to seriously think about going to your prayer closet at home and listen for at least 10 minutes to God's still, small voice. And then ask him, Father, did you create me for just a time as this? And if so, what do you want me to do for your kingdom? And finally, be prepared for his answer. It may come instantly in a matter of days or unfold in a much longer period of time. But rest assured that he will answer you for just a time as this. Legacy family. My question today, were we all made for a time such as this? Let's pray. Not only are you awesome, Father, but you've created us awesome as well. You've provided for us everything we could possibly need to become your role models, your ambassadors to this hopeless, helpless world. And you've made the way for us to accomplish what we couldn't or wouldn't do for ourselves. You have offered a way for the sinner to become clean, the ugly to become beautiful in your eyes, and the hopeless hopeful. How can we thank you enough? You know everything past, present, and future, and you know how to prick our hearts with your spirit. Touch all of us here so that each one may honestly consider, maybe I was made for such a time as this. Show us the way, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.